the National Archives podcast series, Shell-Shocked Britain, Understanding the Lasting Trauma of the First World War, presented by Susie Grogan. Well, hello, and thank you very much for coming to hear my talk on Shellshock Britain, which it's not just a cynical marketing ploy. The title of the talk is the title of the book because it's based on something that I feel very strongly about. I think that after, during and after the Great War, the nation suffered a, a sort of like a collective shock and grief, and it, it traumatised whole communities, and uh, lives were changed drastically, old certainties were undermined Um, and some people as today could cope with these changes better than others and certainly those young men that went off to war so with so much pride um, at the start of the war by the end of the war so many had come back damaged that there was no way that the Britain could ever be the same again and I'm fascinated by the way that echoes of the great war still resonate with us today in a very special way, I think, which is why I think this period of commemoration that we're in is so important. Now, as for so many people who come here on a regular basis, my book was inspired by family history and certainly by using service records of my grandparents and great-uncles that fought in the First World War. My lovely grandpa, Arthur Addison, he was... um, Well, I only knew him as a sort of like a Santa Claus character, a fat, jolly man, full of nervous energy in his 70s, always looking in junk shops and finding treasures. But it's not until you're older and you start asking adult questions of your parents that I realised that a lot of that nervous energy was a consequence of his time in the Rifle Brigade in the First World War. He fought at Passchendaele. He was seriously gassed, very seriously injured as well, and spent a long time in hospital. And all of his life, which, of course, you never realise as a child, but all of his life he was terrified of thunderstorms. He would, well, he would leap out of bed and have nightmares on a regular basis. And obviously my grandma didn't talk to me about these things, but it's only when you've lost someone that you realise quite what an interesting character they would have been to talk about. But what really inspired the book was finding this cutting. Now, access to the British newspaper archives helped such a lot in the writing of my book. And the article that I found is about my great-uncle, Alfred Hardiman. Now, I'd heard all sorts of stories about how it was the war, and nobody knew very much about him. The assumption was made that he'd gone to the Somme or somewhere, and, and he died like so many other young men at the time. But I found his service record, and it was quite clear he'd never left Mill Hill. (laughs) You know, I went along to my mum. I don't know if anybody else has done this, but you merrily race along to your mother, and you say, God, did you know your... um, You know, you start saying all these marvellous things you found out, and he he could have been a bit of a family hero. Um, And I was merrily trampling all over these memories. It turned out, actually, that in 1922, he committed a dreadful murder... And this is a report of the inquest that was in the press afterwards. He committed a murder uh, by killing his girlfriend, who it seems might have been going, going to leave him for another man. 
But then he turned the razor on himself and he cut his own throat. And this was all done in front of my grandmother in the kitchen of the house that my mother had known really well as a child. The family had continued to live there. And there were reports that suggested that he'd nearly chopped this poor young woman's head off. Such was the ferocity of the attack. And I really wanted to find out more because I wanted to find out if he was, apparently it was something to do with his war service. Um, So I wanted to find out more, to find out if it was a one-off, if he was a violent man and that friends and relations should fear for their safety when they were, you know, involved with her family. Because I had already found out that three aunts had ended their days in uh, mental hospitals, his direct relations. But what I did find out was terribly sad because actually their lives had been affected by this event. And he had been in in a works corps and he had been helping out at the air raids that were happening on London at that time. And I realised that not many people knew too much about what is now known as the first blitz. He'd been involved in one of those air raids and he'd been terribly psychologically damaged by it. He'd ended up in a hospital for a year and his service record showed that he had been discharged from the army unfit because he'd become incontinent and bless him, he was only 29. So he had come back into this life, into civilian life and the witnesses at the inquest who were mainly my relations said that he had never been the same and that he had episodes of deep depression and that he was in one of these episodes of deep depression when he committed this terrible act and that actually he'd been a very mild-mannered man. Now, I was quite relieved to find out that actually... I was relieved but desperately sad to find out that actually he, he was only one of very many terrible, tragic stories that happened in families after the Great War. And many of these, as in my family, just simply weren't talked about. Nobody mentioned it. My mother didn't know this had happened in front of her own mother. And we can't quite imagine it nowadays, the fact that families share so much more now. But in in the early part of last century, people simply didn't talk about it. They were living in a part of North London where it was a bit curtain-twitchy. They'd worked their way up from a very difficult life in the centre of, of London. And... They simply didn't want to talk about it. And I found at least, well, three or four dreadful stories where people had done the same thing. They'd cut the throat of their loved one and they'd cut their own throat. And one particular one, there was a chap called Arthur Nedham who'd cut his wife's throat with a razor and then turned the razor on himself. And there was a, a, a sympathetic response There weren't that many sympathetic responses reported, but there was a sympathetic response because he had suffered from neurasthenia, which resulted from shell shock sustained whilst on active service. And it convinced me that there was a deeper story to talk about here, that actually, when you look at work that psychotherapists and psychologists are doing now, they're trying to understand something that's called either epigenetics, which means that things get transferred down through our DNA, or transgenerational trauma, where it's obviously something that goes across and down family trees, and they're working with people with their family trees to assess and map mental health issues down the generations. So that's why I think the First World War does resonate so strongly with us now, is that we still feel part of the story. Now, a very short history of shell shock. It's definitely not. It was not new. And if if our doctors had looked back over the history history of similar kinds of symptoms, they would have been prepared for what happened. It was identified 
more than 2,000 years ago by Herodotus. And at the Battle of Marathon, apparently, people were breaking down, having experienced um, the horrors of battle. There's a quote in the book, actually, from Shakespeare, too. If any of you know Henry IV, part one, it's not one that I know, but I know the, the, the speech by Kate, who's Hotspur's wife, and talking of his dreams and lying next to him at night, it's a, it's a definite description, a recognisable description of the shell shock and the response to shell shock that so many men had. It was genuinely part of the human condition to respond in this way to trauma. It was reported in the Napoleonic and American Civil Wars. Um, in the American Civil War, it was called de Costa Syndrome, or one of the descriptions was called de Costa Syndrome. And this chap here is called Marcus Reno. He's much vilified, but in one of the most um, gory battles of the American Civil War, he had been standing next to his scout, who was called Bloody Knife, um, of all things. Um, but poor Bloody Knife took a shot straight in the face and splattered bits of himself all over Marcus Reno, who proceeded to behave irrationally and run around with his eyes rolling and giving completely mad and incomprehensible orders. And he never recovered. He drank, and he has now got a slightly... Um, I would say it's a difficult um, historical uh, kind of reputation, but he had the most terrible experience. And they, they tried to suggest that it was a heart complaint and it came from carrying too heavy a backpack, but really there were too many coincidences and too much long-term trauma for, for that to be sustainable. And in Britain, actually, although we think it's new, um, the Industrial Revolution and the beginning of the railways, a lot of accidents that were caused on the, the new railways, people exhibited symptoms that we might associate with post-traumatic sh shock. But insurance companies were so terribly worried that there would be Im immense claims made that even then they were finding ways to avoid paying and by suggesting that the people who were claiming were in some way already emotionally weak or, as they would have put it, mad. So this is something that would have been useful to shell shock doctors had they thought carefully about it or if there'd been any of what we call now joined up thinking. So the term shell shock itself was apparently first coined in the Lancet in 1915 by this gentleman, Charles Myers, who was actually an anthropologist, but he was really keen to go abroad to the um, and go to the front to see what he could do in terms of, of psychology. And he quickly realised that although some people were feeling it was most likely caused by proximity to a shell, so actually there was a physical cause of these symptoms people were exhibiting, that actually it was much more likely to be psychological because people were breaking down who had never been anywhere near a shell simply because he was beginning to understand that this was such a different kind of warfare that a new environment was, was created. The, the, the enemy wasn't so visible. People couldn't... There were days and weeks and hours in horrible situations where men just had nothing to do but think about the horrors that might await them. And he realised that the actual um, environment they were fighting in, is, it was more to do with the environment and the kind of war that they were fighting. By the end of the war, 80,000 people had been diagnosed in Britain. But this figure's much underestimated. Um, Professor Jay Winter, who's done a lot of... He's written a wonderful book called Sites of Memory, Sites of Mourning. 
and he has estimated it to be a figure much closer to half a million because that is literally only those who were properly diagnosed and it doesn't include any of those men who came back and broke down subsequent to their service. It doesn't include those who may have broken down even 10 or 12 years later. Coming up to the Second World War, men were still breaking down And so that figure is much underestimated, especially as we probably in our families may have have had uh, someone who fought in the First World War who simply never talked about their experiences. And they may have been as traumatised as many of the men who were actually formally diagnosed. And yet they chose to keep quiet about it and found it impossible to express the horrors that they had actually seen. These are stills from the grainy black and white films. I don't know if any of you have seen them. They were taken by a doctor called Arthur Hurst at Netley Hospital and at Sealhane in Devon, which I visited recently, and it's a marvellous place. You can almost sense the ghosts of the men walking down the steps. It's used now to, as, a, as a building that supports people with very severe uh, disabilities. It's a, it's a wonderful environment. But he took these grey, grainy films, and you can... Look at that list of symptoms, and actually those are symptoms that were listed for shell shock or neurasthenia, which it was um, more often called by doctors after the initial diagnosis. It was, they are genuinely the symptoms that we would now understand to be part of post-traumatic stress or depression and anxiety. Um, and, you know, you could go back to Britain, first of all, they would try and treat you behind the front line. I don't know if anybody's heard of PIE. I think they still, the Americans still try and work to keep men as close as possible to the front, to make sure they expect they're going back to the front and that that they're treated quickly. And they did try that first because they realised that if men went home, they were very much less likely to go back to be ready to fight again. They tried to keep people away from their relations because... Obviously, there would be the added pressure then of leaving them all over again. But if PIE didn't work and men didn't recover, some men did. They just needed a break from the incessant fighting, this incessant shelling and the horrible feeling of dread that was upon them a lot of the time. But if they did come home, their treatment was very much based on where they ended up and which doctor they ended up under. Hospitals were completely unprepared for the numbers affected. And... Um, I've done some work on our local asylum in Somerset. And men were left to rot in county asylums. You know, there's letters from the war office saying, could you tell me if you still have these men in your care? And it was 10 or 15 years later, they weren't receiving any treatment at all. They'd just literally been left in county asylums, which had been emptied of all the regular patients. There were lots of elderly people and people who had been previously... Um, locked up as insane were sent home to their families to make way for these men if you were well in some cases I would say unlucky but the the big hospitals which are for example Craig Lockhart I don't know if any of you have seen Regeneration or read Pat Barker's book but that focuses very much on the work that was done by William Rivers up at Craig Lockhart and also it shows the work done by Lewis Yelland at the Queen's Hospital and never could two means of treatment be more distant in terms of the, the, the benignness of what they did. 
In Craig Lockhart, Rivers was very keen for men to talk about their dreams and their nightmares and the things that were causing them problems. He didn't want them to repress their memories. It was very much more a talking therapy. It was very much more for officers, like Siegfried Sassoon, who he treated. Whereas in Queen Square in London, Lewis Yelland, who appears in the film and in the books, was practising faradization, and he practised faradization not on officers, but on the rank-and-file soldier. And faradization, I don't know if any of you know it, but this is a picture of someone apparently undergoing faradization. If you couldn't speak, they would put an electrode on your tongue and turn the electric current up until you made a noise. If your arm wouldn't move, they would put an electric current through your hand and your arm until such time as they achieved a movement. If they achieved a movement, you would go into a room next door where you would most likely be shouted at and told what a coward you were for leaving all your mates back in the trenches. If it didn't work, it was simply repeated until they got what they would call success. And of course, nowadays, we'd have proper follow-up studies, or rather, we'd hope we had proper follow-up studies. But nobody did any follow-up. And the job of the doctors, the only thing you can say about Lewis Yelland was that he was given the task of getting men back into the trenches. And that's what he thought he was doing. So we have no idea whether those men broke down again as soon as they got back. Certainly there was a recognition that if you broke down a second time, it was very little point in sending you back to the front. And in Germany, for example, if a man exhibited symptoms of shell shock, he would be taken straight off the front line and sent home to do war work at home. They recognised it much quicker. And they weren't necessarily kinder, but they recognised that there wasn't much point in having traumatised men going back into the trenches. In France, they had already recognised that, unlike in Britain, where hysterical symptoms were seen to be very much a female issue, hysterical in inverted commas, you know, the, the, the inability to speak and the deafness and the muteness was very much a female problem. In France, they'd long recognised that men could um, suffer in the same way. Um, it was the British heroic ideal, you know, the stiff upper lip and the public school ethic that often prevented the men getting the treatment they needed because the doctors had been educated in the same way. And, you know, it was extremely difficult for them to see beyond the idea that to be British was to have right on your side. And the heroic ideal had gone right down to the scout movement by then. So even young working-class men knew that really to be British meant that you had to behave in a way that was seen to be manly. And the establishment didn't really help, really. I mean, public concern grew. There was no doubt at all that people were very aware of all these men coming back terribly damaged. And they wanted answers. You know, they'd sent off these young men. They'd cheered them and waved them off with the pride and encouraged them. A lot of them had encouraged their sons, um, their husbands, to go off to war. And th these men were coming back so badly damaged. And it, it, it didn't change post-war. They found out that tens of thousands were remaining on pensions post-war. And the government did what governments often do, and they set up a committee to look into it. Um, Lord Southborough, who actually headed up the committee, was, a, was genuinely interested in making sure that this didn't happen again. But the report, which I think out of hundreds of witnesses, only included about six who had served actually in the trenches... And even then, most of those were officers. There was only one ordinary soldier 
who was called as a witness. Most of them were doctors and they were government officials, eminent psychiatrists. And the report, though it had good intentions, is, is full of snobbery and there is still an acceptance that to be shell-shocked was in some way to be a coward. It's terribly discriminatory. I mean, it's, it's of its time, if you read it. Um, and in the newspapers, they reported it really, really thoroughly in the newspapers. Anybody with shell shock or feeling, sh feeling that they needed support was not likely to come forward having read it. So although they made some recommendations, which were good recommendations, you know, longer lit periods of leave, tours of duty to be shorter, good food, make sure that people had the proper equipment, it all went very quiet. And by the Second World War, a lot of the w good work that had been started had kind of filtered away. I think people felt, you know, we don't think this will ever happen again. We don't need to invest in the kind of work that needs to be done in psychiatry. And psychiatry was moving in different ways. Um, that was, and psychiatry and psychotherapy had something of a, of a difficult relationship with the establishment during that time. So, so much more could have been learned. This is a lovely picture I found on an original postcard. It says, how I felt before the tribunal. The tribunals were set up to make a man feel small, really, uh, to prove, so that he had to prove that he was damaged by the war. And they were given a very hard time. There was an assumption that he was a malingerer until he had actually, until actually there was no way you could deny it. But that the assumption was that somebody was a malingerer, even doctors viewed somebody as a malingerer until proved otherwise. Now, moving on to the home front. Now, Siegfried Sassoon was a bit horrible about the home front. He thought that they were all just sitting there at home having cups of tea and not realising the horrors that were going on. But I think he was being very unfair because, as I said, all these young men had been coming back. People were already knowing there was very few communities that hadn't been hit by the loss of many of their young men. And quite quickly into the war, quite soon, um, sort of like 1915, the Germans were sending across Zeppelins and then eventually later the Gotha airplane, which is the, the, the wingspan, is extraordinary. They were sending those and bombing the um, British soil. So we were, being, we were actually being attacked on home soil and nobody had expected this. In the Second World War, people knew that it would happen. It was terrible, it was ghastly. The, the loss of life was far greater but in the Great Wars, this was a complete surprise. It was almost as if it was War of the Worlds coming to us now. People used to stand out in the streets and watch the planes going over because they looked like silver birds and like insects. And they could never be sure whether they were, obviously, the Zeppelins they knew generally were the, were the enemy, but they could never be quite sure. Um, and the government didn't want to create panic or to stop valuable war work going on. So there were no warnings often no warnings at all apart from that, that image we see of the policeman with a sign round his neck saying, take cover. I mean, the, for, for the book, I had to do quite a lot of research into the, into the air raids because I wanted to understand, if I couldn't identify the air raid that my uncle had been involved in, I wanted to get a really, really thorough picture of what it had been like on the ground for those who were experiencing this for the very first time. And there are some interesting letters. I, I went up to the Little Archive in Leeds, and there's some very interesting letters up there. The, the oral history and the contemporary letters are, 
a really well you can sense how different people were feeling after the initial sort of excitement because there is this kind of excitement that was obviously sensed as part of the first bombing raids it quickly gave way to terror and panic as hundreds of people were being killed and I don't know if any of you have heard of it I'm rather hoping that when it when it reaches its centenary there's some proper commemoration of it but at the moment there's very little is down in Tontine Street in Folkestone Folkestone was obviously a very um, key port and the as is with many of these places when the Gothas because it was a Gotha airplane went overhead on a day when it was full of holiday makers they hit the poorer part of town and residents are said to have been gazing up in the sky when these airplanes came down and bombs rained down on Tontine Street and it was only when the dust cleared that they realised that there'd been terrible carnage there'd been queues outside the shops which had actually been blown away and there were children crying and screaming horses screaming because of course horses were the most common form of transport still and they were screaming in the streets and there's quotes that made the press of queues outside the greengrocers patiently waiting for a new load of potatoes they were surrounded by a still smoking crater and the gutter was blocked by body parts and shards of glass were buried deep underfoot and jets of flame shot up from a ruptured gas main and the moans of the injured mingled with the desperate cries of those searching for loved ones it's something that we know you know it still resonates with us today and at that time, in Folkestone, some very forward-thinking doctors were actually keen to evacuate men, women and children because they were recognised that there was a kind of shell shock in the population because of the constant fear and the worry, not only from these bombs that were coming over, being dropped, and the planes that were coming over, but because also there was this terror of losing loved ones and feeling vulnerable and of losing your husband or your, your sons people were breaking down in the civilian population and yet very few people recognised it there was a terrible raid on London in June 1917 um, which is the nearest one to the one that I can imagine my great uncle might have been involved in and Siegfried Sassoon was involved in it as well and he's quoted as saying in a trench one was acclimatised to the notion of being exterminated and there was a sense of organised retaliation. But here one was helpless. An invisible enemy sent destruction spinning down from a fine weather sky. And he literally described it as being like a battlefield. He then sadly went on to complain because his train was late, even though Liverpool Street Station had been absolutely hammered by the bombings. But his general feeling was that it was something that you know no civilian would have been even slightly prepared for and that is the you may have heard the story of the school uh, the poplar school in upper north street that was hit that day and that's the one where 16 children were killed instantly they were all under fives and that really did cause an outcry and people were beginning to realize that actually this was something that was affecting whole communities and not just happening on the front so i would say far from being ignorant of the horrors at the front those at home were living with fear of air raids. Um, they had restrictions on everyday essentials. And so many of them had had that dreaded, 
telegram that would say sort of missing in action. And at the end of the war, I mean, 50% of, of, of people who had lost someone still had no body at all that was identified as being their loved one. So they had no real way of properly mourning their loved ones. And even to dress in black was seen to be um, unpatriotic. And you shouldn't go around grieving too openly because that was seen as, as damaging morale. And then, of course, before the end of the war, there was the outbreak of Spanish influenza. Now, I've been trying to think of something comparable today, but it's very difficult to do that. The nearest I can get to it is after 9-11. I don't know if any of you remember, there was a real worry about anthrax scares because, you know, generally people were more fearful. And also there was this genuine idea that there, were, there was going to be some follow-up for those who were enduring the Great War, there was, in a sense, a, a, a follow-up, something else horrible that they had to deal with, and that was Spanish flu. Now, I don't know if any of you watched Downton Abbey, but the, the lovely Lavinia died very beautifully of Spanish influenza, just slightly sweaty, really, and able, able to tell her loved one that he could go off and marry the woman of his dreams. Sadly, for people who could lose their whole families within 24 hours, that was not the reality. It was a horrible way to go. And the, the, the thing you can most compare it to is Ebola. It used to have a very... It had a devastating effect on the body. And the trouble was, as soon as the armistice was declared, it, it gave the flu bug exactly the environment it needed. It, you know, men and women were kissing and hugging in the streets. Strangers were... You know, touching in a way that wasn't terribly British. And all those young people who had got through the war, what was saddest was that the influenza outbreak hit them. Now we worry about old people and babies, but then the greatest loss was amongst the young people who had survived the war. Up to 200,000 people died in Britain over a sort of an 18 month period. We can't even conceive of that now. I mean, we all had a sort of a sudden panic and were washing our hands when there was swine flu or when that poor nurse came back from abroad with Ebola. There's this feeling of panic now. If we could imagine 200,000 people dying, I don't think we could even begin to cope. Now, the Office for National Statistics had actually published some very raw data about the number of people who committed suicide during and after the, the Great War. Now, you have to remember, this doesn't include young men who killed themselves um, at the front. Um, it doesn't include any service personnel at all. This is the, in the civilian population. And what I found really interesting was that this, period, this here, you might be able to see it, but here is in the, the early years of the Great War, when they identified that actually um, fewer people were being admitted to asylums and fewer people were being diagnosed with, with what they would call uh, lunacy. And there was this feeling that at the beginning of the war there was this we-must-all-pull-together feeling. But quickly, and by 1917, uh, as people were getting, well, really feeling the full impact of the war, suicides gradually went up until in 1928. It's reached, I mean, it's, it's just shot up in, in a decade. And um, when you look at the demographics of the people who were losing their lives, they're not all like my great uncle. They're not all young men coming back with their service revolvers and 
killing themselves, although there were some very sad stories um, where, you know, it was obvious that young men had come back, couldn't cope with civilian life, and had felt that they simply couldn't go on. There was nothing left for them. But a lot of these were women and men in their 40s and early 50s who had lost all their sons, all their children in the war. Um, there was a very sad story of, of, um, of farmers. Um, a farmer and his wife who had a suicide pact and killed themselves because they had no one to leave their farm to. They so, saw no future in it. And the stories in the newspapers that you can, if you, if you want to look those sorts of things up, there's some tragic stories where people had simply been unable to go on without their, the generation, the next generation. They'd felt that their lives were no longer worth living. And over this period, actually, the means of, of doing away with yourself became much easier because cars and gas ovens were much more readily available in those post-war years for those that could afford them. And so the increase there is accounted for largely by an, the number of people who gas themselves in their cars or using the gas oven. It's really sad. There's, I mean, in the book I've done, there's some more analysis of age and gender, but it's a, that's the general pattern, and I just think that's terribly sad. It would be interesting to see what happened shortly before the Second World War and afterwards. Oops. Um, yes, yeah, so society was changed completely, and that was another reason that people were suffering with intense depression after the Great War. Um, women had had new roles, which, if they wanted to stay working, they were quickly disabused of the idea that they could do that when many were made immediately redundant so that men could be re-employed. But many of them had been managing a household by themselves, and men who came back found that their children hardly recognised them or turned to their wives for discipline, which was very difficult. And that's when you hear talk of the men ending up going down the pub and talking to their fellow muckers about the experiences they'd had because nobody else could understand it. And unemployment and social change, that, that it was not a home for heroes. All the things and all the... We talk about it almost every conflict. We're promising people so much when they come back. But men found that you know there was huge high rates of unemployment and the world was a different place. And there was a real concern about the effect on children because there was already a worry that having lost the, what many would term the best of British youth, that we were going to see that the next generations, the ones who would be, as Lloyd George put it, we can't run an A1 empire on a C3 population. Those people who were having children were not the people that the establishment wanted to be having children. They wanted middle-class women to have lots of babies and go back to being something that they were in their grandmother's day. And it was very difficult. And the eugenics movement was extremely, well, it was bolstered by this concern in the establishment that we simply weren't going to have enough young men, men, we weren't going to have enough young men to run all those major government departments, be top of the tree in the army. And someone like Mary Stopes, who I'd always kind of held up as a bit of a feminist icon, when I discovered that actually she wrote 
She wrote love poems for Hitler. And much... <laughs> she had a bit of a crush on Hitler. <laughs> it sounds a bit silly. But she, she genuinely um, wanted to uh, support women who wanted to prevent endless childbearing. But she had as her concern the fact that most of the children being born were not the children who would be running the country. I mean, the words imbeciles were used a lot. And men who were coming back from the war damaged by shell shock were, were being discouraged from having children. Or a lot of the doctors who themselves had seen time at the front and then come back didn't have children themselves because they genuinely thought that their experiences would actually be going down through the generations of children. So it was quite widely accepted. And mercifully, the eugenics movement, they suddenly realised in the mid-30s that actually Hitler wasn't quite the chap they thought he was. But Britain and eugenics and the fascist movement is a very complicated subject that, you know, there are people that we hold up as heroes who had what we would consider now to be very dubious ideas. And in America, men who had been um, shell-shocked, who had been admitted to asylums, were were compulsorily sterilised to stop them having children. And that was mooted in Britain. Um, One doctor was even mooting gas chambers. So if you were someone who was suffering and who felt they needed support, it wasn't an environment where you would feel comfortable coming out or expressing the issues, and it simply wasn't done anyway. Now, what did people do to help themselves if they weren't being helped by the establishment? Well, if you look back over the last century, and I mean, I remember talking to my mum about what she used to take in the 50s. There was something called Oblivon. A lot, of, a lot of the medicines that people had, certainly in the Great War before there was any NHS, were over-the-counter remedies from the chemist. And most of them had some kind of uh, what we would now consider dubious substance as its basis. So there, was, there has been discussion about how many people were on this kind of low level of drug addiction. Um, because these things like Castle's tablets and Hall's wine and phosphorine were all advertised to help with nerves during the Great War. That man there in that advert is swearing that phosphorine sorted out his shell shock and that without it he would be a shadow of the man he is now. And they were either alcohol or they were morphine-based And that's where you would go. You would go to your local chemist for something in the first instance because, of course, the doctors were still turning up and looking at the mantelpiece to see if the coppers were on the mantelpiece before they'd treat you, if you were a working-class person, of course. Papers were full of miracle cures as well. They loved a miracle cure. So um, I'm a West Ham supporter, so I really enjoyed finding out that one man was apparently cured at a match between Millwall and West Ham (laughs) because it got especially exciting... And he found that he could shout all of a sudden. I mean, these are spontaneous. And, of course, we've got no follow-up. We have no idea whether the man was um, subsequently able to recover or whether he, was, whether he relapsed almost immediately afterwards. And also the story of Kent Prosser Paints is fascinating because the Maudsley Hospital, towards the end of the war, was painted in particular colours the wards with shell-sock soldiers in because they'd identified that particular colours were particularly restful or spring colours were particularly hopeful. And actually we know now that there, was, um, there are colours that have that. Corporate logos, for example, will be in particular colours. Counselling um, centres will be in particular colours. But Kent Prosser paints, which actually that was found to be beneficial. 
again that spoiled it rather because some of the men then reported that they thought it was the smell of the paint that had made them feel so much better it was a bit like sniffing tipex <laughs> and so they had had this instant buzz so th- sadly there is no follow-on work done in these things but the newspapers were thrilled when they could report something that would hope offer hope to people and again people were seen as cranks but they were writing in suggesting swimming and fresh air there was one interesting letter where somebody wrote in and said young men should take off all their clothes and run through the run through the woods as nature intended <laughs> as a cure for shell shock. What they were really talking about was they were talking about playing the guitar and it all sounds soppy in the way that they express it in the newspapers because they're being rather cynical. But actually now we know that music therapy, art therapy, and getting out and about in the environment is actually very supportive to people with mild to moderate depression. If you're severely traumatized and damaged, it needs further treatment. But mild to moderate depression responds well to these things that they were suggesting then and being rather... I mean, apart from running naked, obviously, but they were being rather thrown out as cranks for suggesting it. And then the rise of spiritualism. The, the, I can't go into it in great detail here, but it's a fascinating subject because the churches were very tub-thumping and they were patriotic and they saw it as their duty in the um, pulpit to recruit Um, men to the front to do the right thing God was seen on our side Um, and for many traditional um, religion just didn't cut it anymore it it couldn't offer the support that people needed and whereas before the the great war spiritualism had been rocked by a lot of fraudulent claims about mediums who were basically magicians during the war people found a huge amount of comfort in meeting with other people and discussing their um, losses much more readily with somebody who described themselves as a psychic or a medium. And those psychics and mediums would offer them a channel to their loved one who was inevitably sitting up in a beautiful haven, drinking whiskey or or learning to play the guitar in in a never-ending summer land And we look back on it now and we wonder, well, we think we could never do it. But there were hundreds of thousands of people who turned to spiritualism. Halls were packed, absolutely packed with people. And there were hundreds and thousands of little circles that were established across Britain where mediums, who many of whom genuinely thought they had a gift, were offering people solace. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was one of the main celebrity endorsers. And he and Houdini had quite an interesting discussion about um, fakery and the reality of spiritualism and it it really does bear more research about how how the traditional church felt they were letting people down and how they were at a loss to know what to do so I wanted to look at what the legacy was and what lasting message we could take from the experiences in the great war because I think that we may have gone a whole century but we haven't learn enough of the lessons even now to make sure something similar wouldn't happen if a major conflict, if a, a more major conflict were to strike us now. For those in the Great War, it was a rapid learning experience. I mean, we talk about um, lions and donkeys, but people just weren't expecting the kind of warfare that, that was, by the end of the Great War, it was a completely different kind of war um, to the one that many had expected. And there was certainly no sense that the home front was going to be deeply traumatised 
until it was quite clear that they were no longer safe on their home soil and that you could be reached by an alien foreign power who wanted to um, conquer you. It was, it was terrifying for people. No research continued post-war, which was a big mistake, because then people still suffered with shell shock in the Second World War. Different, often, but still the similar kind of responses. And this British stiff upper lip that we're so proud of, and we talk about old granddad never needed a counsellor, he, he never talked about his troubles. Actually, that left many very vulnerable, and, and many grandparents, oral histories, I don't know if any of you have heard Richard Van Emden speak here, but he's written some wonderful books, some oral history books. I had a meeting with him in this very building. And he was hugely supportive because the oral histories that he'd taken were often showing that grandparents could talk more readily to their grandchildren than they could to their own children, that it kind of skipped a generation and that grandchildren were finding out an awful lot more, grown-up grandchildren were finding finding out an awful lot more about the experiences of these elderly men, like Harry Patch, who was the last surviving Tommy, he only spoke about his experiences very late in his life when people offered him the opportunity in a sensitive way. So being silent wasn't necessarily always the best way of being. And now, when we still see our um, service personnel coming back from what sometimes are, are normally called peacekeeping missions... They've been trained so well now that they can never relax. They can never be anything other than battle-ready. Coming back to civilian life is still extremely difficult, and they still don't get the support that they genuinely need, often don't get the support that they genuinely need. And 100 years ago, those were factors that people noticed 100 years ago that it was much more likely to turn a man to drink, that families were living separate lives. Um, domestic violence, many women looked after shell-shocked men who came back, who were loving husbands before they went away, had turned into very violent men. And lots of women looked after them diligently. Very sad stories of people having to give up eventually when they could no longer cope in the 1930s. But now these are things that are still reported in our veteran population. And we don't seem to have learned the lessons from 100 years ago. I think that um, certainly if there's... I was trying to find the quote here. There's been much more talk recently about how difficult it is for, I think, Johnson Bihari, who won the VC in Iraq. Iraq? I think it was Iraq. He um, described being in Tesco's, and you're on battle alert. If someone knocks into your trolley, you're immediately on battle alert. And, you know, people need support when they're living their lives like that. That's a knife edge to be living on all the time and the anxiety can be crippling to yourself and to your family you know it's still causing family breakdowns and PTSD or combat stress as we now like to call it because PTSD can be caused by any traumatic event really um, it was only recognized here in the 1980s and I think it's I don't know if any of you have heard of Viktor Frankl he wrote a book and in it he, he was an Austrian psychiatrist And he had survived a Nazi concentration camp, and a lot of the work that's being done now on transgenerational trauma is being done with survivors um, or children of survivors of the Holocaust. And they've done quite a lot of work that shows that the children of Holocaust survivors are more susceptible to to depression and anxiety and breakdown um, because they take on the family history 
Um, and it makes them, it is almost transgenerational. The, the trauma is being held in the generations, down the generations. And he said, an abnormal reaction to an abnormal situation is normal behavior. And really that's saying that it's, it would be abnormal not to react to these situations in a way that was to break down. It's abnormal not to find these things traumatic. It would be abnormal not to be disgusted. It would be, it would be odd not to be disgusted if you were blown backwards and your head landed in, in the belly of a rotting Nazi, as what happened to one poor man. And there's a wonder that anybody didn't immediately think that that sort of experience needed support, but many men just didn't get it. And perhaps the First World War's legacy... Now, during this period of the centenary commemorations, you know, we could go back, you know, four years' time and it'll all be over and nothing much will change again. But I would hope that during that period, it's highlighted, it's, this subject is highlighted enough that something can be done to prevent it happening to a next generation of young service personnel. Thank you. This talk was recorded on the 10th of December, 2015, at the National Archives, Q. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.